was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so excited to announce my interview with veteran actor Tom Sesma. Tom Sesma is currently appearing off-Broadway in A Man of No Importance at Classic Stage Company, of which today is actually closing day, and his prolific stage career has included appearances in La Cajo Fall, Chuchem, Nick and Nora, Search and Destroy, Face Value, Man of La Mancha, and The Times They Are Changing on Broadway, as well as a Sherlock Carroll, Letters of Suresh, Superhero, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd, As Thousands Cheer, In a Pig's Valise, Othello, Cymbeline, and more in New York. So now, without further ado, here's Tom Sesma. And so I would love to begin by asking you, growing up or at least being born in Japan, how did you first become interested in theater? Oh, my gosh. Well, um, you know, my father was a big musical theater fan. Uh, I grew up in San Diego. Um, you know, my dad was in the U.S. Navy and he met my mom in Japan and that's where I was born. Uh, but not long after I was born, um, he, he was stationed in California and um he had a big giant stereo console uh, with a whole collection of um, of uh, Broadway um, cast albums, um, and he used to play them on the weekends, uh, really, really loud, so he could hear it outside while he was working in the garden. And there was also a show on the local AM radio station, I think it was called KSDO, and it was called The Sunday Show, and they played Broadway tunes. And my dad, you know, we did two things on Sunday. We went to church, went to mass, and then we listened to The Sunday Show. So that was it, that was the introduction. Um, I remember when my dad took us to the theater for the first time, and that had an impact on me. And uh, I just continued to, listen to show tunes I you know I really didn't know anything about the theater um I didn't know um I I never knew how one became an actor so I don't know how that uh was triggered in in my uh in my tiny little childhood consciousness but uh, but things just fell into place at a certain point and were there specific performers that you admired? Oh my gosh. Yes. You know, from listening to uh, cast albums, um, you know, of course, you know, the original cast album of um, Oklahoma, for instance, wow. um, Alfred Drake was, was just amazing. And then we also had the soundtrack to the film of, I, wow, you know, now that I think about it, Oklahoma really had an impression upon me. Uh, Gordon McRae in uh in the film of oklahoma was was pretty remarkable i used to you know i used to sing along to all of the uh, all of the albums when i was young it's a, it's a funny thing when i was older 
and I was buying my own cast albums. I remember I, I, uh, uh, I had Three Penny Opera. I had Promises, Promises. Later on, I had Chicago. I had all these, all these albums that Jerry Orbach was singing on. And uh, I would listen to him carefully. I would sort of imitate him a lot stylistically. Uh, and um, years later, I think I was doing an episode of Law and Order. I think it was the third episode that I did. I, th I did a whole bunch of them. Um, and uh, I had a really nice scene with Jerry Orbach in this wow. one episode. And after we wrapped at the end of the day, I went to his dressing room. And I knocked, you know, and, and uh, you know, he came out. He he couldn't have been nicer. He was so nice to everybody on the set. Uh -huh. And uh, I said, I have to thank you. And he said, for what? He didn't know me from Adam. I was just the guy I was doing the scene with. And I said, you taught me how to sing. And his little eyebrow went up. And I said, I used to play Broadway cast albums that you were on, and I would sing along with you. And I listened to how you managed a lyric, how you, you know, how you drove through a song what all of that meant to you as a character and as a performer. And I think I learned more from you about singing musical theater than anything else. Wow. And a funny smile crept over his face. And he said, that means so much to me. He said, you know, I learned to sing by listening to records of Alfred Drake. So I like to think that there's a direct line from me to Alfred Drake somewhere in that story and somewhere in my, uh, in my uh, performances whenever I sing on stage. How did you begin to study theater and to develop your talent in that way? I didn't really study formally until I moved to New York. You know, I, um, I started my career out in LA on what a lot of us affectionately call the Orange County Dinner Theater Circuit. <laughs> And I learned a lot by watching other performers and just by hanging out and you know, doing things the actors do. But I really didn't know, like I said earlier, I didn't know how one became an actor. Right. Yes, I thought one was just born an actor. I didn't realize there were training programs. I knew that you, I, I didn't realize there were conservatories. I, you know, I was, a, I was a late starter. I was in my mid-20s and I didn't even know there were things called conservatories. Um, and when I moved to New York, uh, not long after I got into New York, I, I, I moved to New York, I got into my first Broadway show and I was working with a really, really wonderful man who is not, no longer with us named Frank DePasquale. And he was studying at HB Studios with a woman named Carol Rosenfeld. And uh, gosh, Frank was just wonderful. He was a wonderful human being. He was a really, really marvelous performer. Um, and he said, why don't you come down to class? You can audit the class. And uh, I think it was the first real, with the exception of a few drama classes that I was in uh, where I went to college, it was the first time I had ever been in a, 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 an institution that was devoted to theater. Um, and I signed up for Carol's class after audit, auditing one and I studied with her for, I don't know, I think 13 years. Wow. She's still my mentor. I mean, this was, this was 35 years ago, maybe. And occasionally I'll still reach out and contact Carol and ask her to see something I'm in or ask her questions about, about something. She is a remarkable teacher. She was a Uta Hagen's protege. Oh. And um, she, uh, 
Uta Hagen, of course, ran HB Studios. And um, Carol is now running HB Studios. Miss Hagen, <clears throat> Miss Hagen is gone, long gone now. And uh, Carol is a Carol's a remarkable teacher. And this is a shameless plug for her. She doesn't know <laughs> anyone, but I would recommend her to anyone who's interested in finding truth in acting. And to um to go back a little bit, one of the shows I believe you did in LA before you moved was Chaplin with Anthony Weebly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what was that like to be working with him? Uh, working with working with Tony Newley was fantastic. He he was such a lovely, lovely, generous man. He was um, he was kind. He was, as I said, he was generous. He loved being in rehearsal with everyone. Um, he loved creating the show that, you know, unfortunately was not, um, it was stillborn. It, it didn't really get to be what it should have been um, for whatever reason that happens, a completely random set of reasons. Uh, but it had so much promise and he really believed in it. And I got to see someone who was, I mean, let's face it, he was not on the A-list anymore by the time he did Chaplin. Um, you know, he had he had a, a, a bag of tricks, mannerisms, um, which I really admired and I loved. Uh, but I think a lot of people made fun of him um, in lots of ways, you know, his, his very, very mannered way of singing. <laughs> um, but it was so interesting because it wasn't you know, when, when I say bag of tricks, that doesn't mean anything that he was doing was lazy or easy. That was all invested in a, in a passionate expression of, of something truthful. Every time he did something like that, that was just his vocabulary. And um, it was interesting to watch him work. It was a remarkable group of people, too. I still maintain really close friendships with a lot of people who were involved in that show. Um, it's one of the things that happens. I'm sure you've experienced this before and heard this before when you've talked to um, other people uh, for your podcast, that when a show's in trouble, when a show is really struggling to make itself right, the cast will bond together in an extraordinary way. Yeah. Um, it's almost like, like uh, veterans of some, some really horrible struggle. Uh, who come out of it alive and intact somehow, um, older and wiser, but really, really connected with each other. And that's one of the things I really remember about it. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned that show being sort of stillborn out of town and not coming in and all that. And of all of the many shows that you've done off Broadway and regionally, is there one that you especially felt should have had a chance at Broadway that didn't? Oh my gosh, Charles, there are so many. <laughs> I have done so many. I have done so many. I, I guess I'm going to use that stillborn. I, th I think stillborn should probably be on my gravestone. <laughs> no. um, uh, because I, I have done so many shows that, you know, deserved a better break. At least that's how I felt when I was doing them. But it takes some age and it takes some experience and it takes some, uh, a, a real sense of, mature retrospection to look back and you see, oh, now I understand why that didn't make it. It just wasn't very good. But I have some a sentimental attachment to quite a few, uh, quite a few shows that um, that I felt deserved a longer run or at least deserved the time 
to improve themselves. Um, one of my favorite experiences in the theater was a show that, uh, I don't read reviews, but apparently it got terrible reviews. Uh, and it really surprised me because I thought it was wonderful working on it. And that was uh, a show by Tom Kitt and John Logan called Superhero that oh. I did a couple years ago, a couple years ago, gosh, uh, I think four years ago at Second Stage. Um, it was just so beautiful, quiet, unexpected, truthful, and extraordinarily moving to me. Um, but apparently it didn't it didn't reach its audience and it makes me very very sad i think it will find an audience someday oh. i think i think now that the show is licensed uh it'll find a theater that's the right size or has the right um the right audience for it and it will come around again um but it's a beautiful score and it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, I think that there was another show that I did, the last show I did before the pandemic, which opened on March 9th, 2020, um, that opened and got wonderful reviews. And I, I couldn't have been more happy. And that was Michael Friedman and Daniel Goldstein's Unknown Soldier. Um, of course, everything closed down on March 12th, just three days later. Uh, we had one performance, one regular, we had opening night and then one regular performance. Wow. And, then, uh, and then we were shuttered and the show never reopened. That was an extraordinary show in lots of ways. Uh, I worked with Michael Friedman when, in 1998 when he was assisting Liz Suedos um, in a production of Cymbeline um, in the park, Shakespeare in the Park. Andre Servan directed it, and I was in that show. And Michael and I became friends, not close friends, I guess really warm acquaintances. We ran into each other over the years uh, since then, and he was, he, he was always so nice and so interested in what I was doing. And I was so pleased for all the success he was having. Really, really a genuine, genuine human being, a great loss, not just to the theater community, but I think to every individual person that he ever met or that ever met him. Um, but um, it, it kind of came full circle to go, to, to start uh, a particular kind of career um, in 1998 then not to work with Michael again until after he was gone, yeah. which is interesting. The show itself is about loss, is about memory, is about the mythology of someone who we have been in touch with, um, who we've been um, friends with or intimate with, uh, and the mythology of that person in our minds. Um, in order to continue to create that show after Michael was gone, uh, Tripp and Danny, who in addition to being Michael's collaborators, Tripp Coleman, the director, um, were very, very protective of, of Michael's intentions uh, and of Michael's spirit. And in many ways, 
Michael was more present in that rehearsal room. I know this is going to sound weird than many living writers that I have worked with in rehearsal rooms. Oh, yeah. Um, and I don't mean that out of any disrespect to any writer who was <laughs> weird living and breathing and happened to be watching his, watching the play. Um, but it, it, uh, it was extraordinary to feel his presence on almost a daily basis. I can't really explain it better than that. I only know that I believe that the show we opened was the show that he wanted because he had such a great part in shaping what he left behind. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm so sorry. I'm so sad. And and again, it's a, it's a, I hate to be so hyperbolic about it, but it's a tragedy of mythic proportions that he <laughs> was, that it didn't have a longer run. Yeah. Uh, because it really deserved it. Um, I'm not sure that it ever could have moved to Broadway. It was a small show. It was a very intimate show. Um, but if it had, uh, I think it would have done very well. That was filled with some extraordinary performances, just like Superhero was filled with extraordinary performances, too. And then there's one other uh, play that I did recently that I just thought deserved a better run. I think it was sort of an apotheosis for me in many ways. Uh, and that was Rajiv Joseph's Letters of Suresh, which I did at Second Stage just last year. Um, it was the first play that I did out of the pandemic. Um, and that was an extraordinary experience um, to be able to work with the, the, the actors that I was working with was extraordinary. And one of my favorite directors, Maya Dralas. But to also be in a room with Rajiv Joseph um, was very, very interesting because his relationship with the play was different from any playwright that I'd ever seen with the play, at least that I that had ever been evidenced to me. Um, I usually get nervous when playwrights, composers, lyricists, etc. are in the room. Um, I think it's because of my ego because I want to please them so much. But um, it was so easy to be in the room with Rajiv because his relationship with the play was so clearly an organic relationship by which he was learning more about the play itself by watching it. And in a strange way, learning more about himself by watching the play come to life. It was a thing of beauty and it taught me a lot about my own rehearsal process what I have to learn as a creative artist. Um, I, I treasured every moment oh. in that rehearsal room. Uh, and I thought it was a stunning, I thought it was an extraordinary transcendent production. Uh, and again, it just had, it just had a brief run. Uh, I thought it deserved a longer run. I don't know how you make that happen when you're part <laughs> of the season, you know, and you have a specific closing date and, and contracts stipulate that the show can't go beyond a certain point. But, uh, but it was ex extraordinary. You know, I have been so lucky these last few years, Charles, oh. to so continuously. And um, on all of these projects, I've just, I've just learned more and more about, um, you know, about myself, about my work, uh, and have been reminded of how I felt early in my career about wanting to become an actor. Um, because I think we tend to forget that. 
actors always forget the, the very, very basic things about, you know, um, why they wanted to become an actor in the first place. Now, having said that, I'm not sure if I could articulate it, but that's how I feel. <laughs> and so um, to ask about this phenomenon that you have of working so consistently, is it ever a challenge for you if you're, say, doing one play and I'm rehearsing another during the day to sort of manage both things? It's, it's insane, and I don't know why I do it. And every single time I do it, I say, I'm never going to do this again. Because <laughs> basically, you put the rest of your life on hold, which, which I am not a champion of putting your life on hold in any respect. Mm -hmm. um, because your life is what makes you an actor. Your life you know, provides, uh, provides all the, uh, the sustenance you need in order to show up to rehearsal and to create I'm not going to say something out of nothing, but all of that stuff is channeled into into what you bring to life. Um, but you're just always exhausted, and I and, and I and I don't know if you end up not giving a hundred percent to either or both. But really, it's your job to give a hundred percent to either or both. And if you can't do that, maybe you shouldn't be doing double duty. Yeah. But it's, as you know, it's something that a lot of us do. I mean, there are so many people who do. Okay, in my case, I was rehearsing one show and putting on another. But there are so many cases where people, you know, are working on their their shows off Broadway or Broadway or even out in the regions. And during the day, they're doing a workshop. So they're helping create a new piece of work, you know, and uh, it isn't just about showing up and getting a paycheck and seeing your friends and being in the rehearsal room. It's also about contributing to a creative process, to the birth of a new thing. And if you're not at your best in that situation, then you're not serving the project. I'm being really, really hard on myself right now. I, I should probably not be so hard on myself in this regard because, you know, if I'm if I'm fortunate, this may happen again, um, which is weird because didn't I just say two minutes ago that I was never going to do it? <laughs> <laughs> so it is difficult. It is difficult. Yeah. It it always helps to uh, also also it always helps to have generous people that you're working with your director and your writers and your producers and your managers and, you know, and your fellow cast members who understand that you're working, uh, you know, on the other thing. Um, what I find really interesting is in those situations, um, those people tend to be really excited for you that you're working on something else um, because I, I guess it's an affirmation that they made the right choice. It's like, oh, I hired somebody good. At least I hope that's what it is. I'm not saying I'm good or anything like that, but at least I hope that that's the impression that, that they're uh, that they're working off of. And to um to go back a little bit, and actually a two part question, I'd love to ask you. First, being how did you make the decision to move to New York? And second, being was it did it come easily to you auditioning when you got there? Were you getting a lot of parts right away? Well, part one of that question was, how did I move to New York? I, um, you know, I did Chaplin out in L.A. and Chaplin played at the Music Center. Um, I 
the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and it closed and it was supposed to move to New York. And that was my plan. I was going to move to New York. But prior to that show happening in Los Angeles, I had visited New York. I had visited a friend out here and I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in San Diego, right? Paradise. I came out to New York to visit this friend and I stepped I took the air train from JFK to Midtown Manhattan. I stepped out of the subway with my suitcase in a downpour. I didn't have an umbrella. And I looked around and I said, I'm home. I just felt like this was the greatest place on earth. I was soaking wet to the bone. And here I was. Um, in New York, just loving it. And I knew that I was going to move there. When Chaplin closed, everything we sent, uh, months later, I think, I think it was just three or four months later, we were supposed to start rehearsal in New York. So I had planned on moving. I was very, very lucky. I didn't have to move to New York myself. So I was going with a show. Um, and I got to New York and I got, found a little apartment on 57th and 10th. And it was two weeks before rehearsals were supposed to begin. We all got telegrams, Western Union telegrams saying that rehearsals had been indefinitely postponed. Now, the collapse of the Champlain project is kind of mythic in its own way. Uh, it involves a long dramatic stories about producers meeting in a bar in Los Angeles and writing an agreement on a cocktail napkin. This was such a sensational story that on the night that Chaplin was supposed to open on Broadway, there was an article on the front page of the New York Times, or maybe it was just the front page of the art section, about why it wasn't opening on Broadway that night. And it was about that agreement written on a cocktail napkin. Oh. If you can find this, just do a Google search on, you know, Chaplin, Broadway, 1984, and you'll find this article. Uh, Anthony Newley, David Suskind. Google those names all together and this article will come up. Um, so that was a sidebar. So I was in New York, so I had to find a job and I had to start auditioning. You know, I had some money saved up from our little out of town tryout, but that wasn't going to last forever. Um, but again, you know, I was a I was a slow learner. I'm still a slow learner. Um, so I was just watching what other what the other kids were doing, you might say. Um, and I hit the ground running. I, you know, I started getting backstage magazine or backstage newspaper, whatever it was called back then. Um, started going to open calls, had my equity card, so I checked out the equity office and, you know, was, was uh, um, constantly looking for, for things that I should be auditioning for. And um, it wasn't until two or three years later that I realized, oh, I, I, could, I could find an agent too, you know, maybe that's something that I should do. Uh, but I was also really, really fortunate because I think it was, let me see, six months after I moved to New York, uh -huh. um, I auditioned for, um, I went to an open call for a replacement in the original Broadway cast of La Caja Fall. And I booked it. 
gosh, I don't know how that happened, but I did. And um, I made my Broadway debut not long after that. I replaced uh, our dear Ken Ward, also no longer with us. Um, and I stayed with that show for two years. And, you know, I met Frank Pasquale, and I started studying with Carol Rosenfeld and I found an agent and I guess the rest is kind of history, I guess. And so to, um, to speak of mythic things in the theater, you worked with one of its most sort of notorious figures on that show and later on Nick and Nora, Arthur Lawrence, of course. And, and what was that collaboration like with him? I wouldn't call it a collaboration. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> let me let me uh, straighten out that misapprehension right away. Um, I don't know. A lot of people get a lot of mileage out of out of making fun of Arthur. I I don't have anything bad to say about Arthur. He he was you know uh, to say he was not a nice person is not saying anything bad about Arthur because I think he would admit that himself. Um, he was not necessarily nice to me uh, in either situation, but uh, you know, on either show. Um, as a matter of fact, during Nick and Nora, there was a period of time where I wouldn't speak to him. I wouldn't acknowledge his presence in the room. And I think that bothered him a lot. I was just, I was just so angry at the way he had, he had treated me about something that, that I felt wasn't my fault. Um, and then something occurred in the show uh, one night. Actually, I'll, 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 the story is that he had to cut my song. I had a song at the end of the show, near the end of the show. Um, and he had to come up and tell me that the song was cut. And I looked at him and I said, Arthur, I said, I said you're making the right decision. I said, I, th I think this is going to make it a better show. And he looked at me like I had three heads because he expected he came up prepared for a fight. Um, all I wanted was for the show to get better in some way. And he said, I really misjudged you, Tom. He said, you're you're a prince. And, and he was very, very kind to me after that. Oh. And I, I'm not going to say that that was a transactional thing on my part that wasn't intended as such. Um, but I think he learned something. You know, he was available to learn something. Um, I don't know if anyone else has had that. You know, I don't know how many people had experiences like that with Arthur. Uh, but, but it was difficult. But I'm a better person for it. I'm better. I think I'm a better actor for it. Um, and I kind of owe that growth to Arthur. But on the other hand, when someone speaks ill of Arthur, I usually laugh. Yeah. <laughs> because invariably, the truth is much worse than they imagine. And I'd be curious to know, what do you think was the ultimate problem with Nick and Nora that it couldn't succeed? You know, I don't think Nick and Nora was so much a bad show as much as it was fatally mediocre. It could never rise above just being mundane. I, I, a lot of people have talked about like getting that script and 
taking it apart and putting it back together the way it should be put back together. But um, okay, let me see. I think the reason, the real reason the show never worked well, and I think Arthur would admit this too, because he did in rehearsal, um, is that he just didn't like the characters. He didn't like Nick and he didn't like Nora. He didn't like them as people. Um, so it was going to be impossible for him to write, uh, to write about it well. Um, that was one thing. Uh, nobody would, you know, I think that just nobody was working at their best. And I think that they would all admit that. Um, there were any, any number of reasons, but I think the biggest problem with Nick and Nora was expectations were so high. I mean, look at the people involved in it and look where they were coming from. Arthur was coming, coming off the success of, of uh, winning the Tony for directing La Caja Fall. Um, you know, he, he was the author of Gypsy and West Side Story, right? Um, he had done earlier, I think, the turning point in the way we were you know, in, in, in you know, two sensational movies. Uh, Joanna was just coming off of Into the Woods. Uh, Barry Bostwick was returning in a highly anticipated return as a leading man to a Broadway musical, you know, and then you had Faith and Deborah and, and um, Ramak Ramsey and Keen Curtis, you know, just all of these incredible, incredible people. And, um, And when that curtain went up and when that overture ended and the show started, everyone, you, you could sense it. Everybody in the audience just kind of went like, huh? It's like watching a dog, you know, who, like, have you ever tried to have a conversation with a dog and they just look at you and like, huh? They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure out what's going on and they just can't, but they're trying they, you know, they just made the audience work too hard to try to figure out what was going on. 69 previews, nine performances, and Alex Witchell, God bless her, was writing something nasty and very entertaining almost every week in the Friday Times. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so I think in many ways we were dead before we started, only because it would have had to have been... Uh, Phantom, Les Mis, and Jesus Christ all wrapped up into one. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, um, we of course, talked about Arthur Lawrence, but another great director you worked with was uh, Graciela Daniela in A Pig's Valise. And yeah. <laughs> what was that like to be working with her? You know, Graciela told me some things that still stay with me. Uh, I think it was my first off-Broadway show, first or second off-Broadway show. Um, I would I would set myself on fire if if Graziella asked me. Um, it, it was extraordinary. I loved I loved the piece. Really, really interesting, offbeat piece. I, I wish someone would do it again because I think it would do very well now. Um, uh, but we were at Second Stage when Second Stage was uptown. Nathan was in it. Nathan Lane, brilliant. Gosh. Um, I was just watching him every night, just, I, I couldn't keep up with how fast his mind worked uh, and works. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was entertaining and educational all at once. Uh, 
but Graziella, the first thing she takes out of her toolkit is love. She um, inspires people to work from such a place of generosity and warmth that, and passion. I think in, in Spain, they call it duende. It's just the kind of room that you want to be in as a creative person. Either, either as a participant or as a witness. It was just extraordinary. Again, stillborn. Nobody liked that show. Nobody liked that show. <laughs> it was it was it was just so odd, but God, I thought it was I thought it was wonderful. I was having such a good time. Um and, and Graziella is I, I don't know, she she um if Broadway had saints, she would be a saint. Oh. She'd have three or four halos. <laughs> That's great to hear. And I believe your um, your second Broadway show after La Cage au Fall was Hohenze. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you pronounced it right. Yes, yeah. I've been excited to ask you about that one with Albert Marr and all that. Yeah, Albert, Albie Marr, uh, Mitch Lee. Chuchem. We did it off Broadway at the, I think it was Jewish Rep. Uh, and then it moved to the Ritz, which is now known as the Walter Kerr. Chuchem is not a good show um, by any standard. Uh, it's not a bad show. Um, it's just, sorry to say this, Mitch, Albie, uh, it's kind of a lazy show. It, it relied on too many um, tropes and cliches that we'd all seen before. And, uh, and, and I have to say now, looking back on it in retrospect, I, I think we all knew it then too. I just, we didn't talk about it as much. It was terribly, terribly offensive. Um, I mean, the title, the, the first song, not the title song, but the first song of the show is, uh, the premise of the show is that uh, a trio of um, Jews, I think it takes place in the Middle Ages, is wandering through the Far East, looking for the lost tribe of Israel. And they find themselves in China a land that is basically closed off to outsiders. And they somehow uh, uh, insinuate themselves into this society and um, find out that indeed the Chinese, the Chinese are the lost tribe of Israel. That's the end of the story. Um, I gave it away. Um, but of course, it's not an authentic China. There isn't even an attempt to make China remotely authentic. Yeah. Um, but the first, uh, the first number is called Orient Yourself. It's actually kind of a catchy tune. Um, we did a demo recording. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. So all you musical theater fans who find little artifacts like that, if you can find the demo recording of Chu Chem, you will give yourself uh, a jaw-droppingly entertaining afternoon. Um, it moved to Broadway. 
it uh, it moved to Broadway on that crazy year in the the eighties or the nineties, the early nineties, when I think there were only two shows that were nominated for best musical. Uh, it was it was a pretty grim year, and we weren't getting any kind of audience. It was very very cheaply produced. Um, it was so cheaply produced that I think audience members, when they walked into the theater and they saw the set, there was no show curtain. When they saw the set, they were angry because they knew they, they, that you know, the producers weren't spending any money on this. Um, it, it, they kept that show open for a long time up until the Tony nominations were announced. And then they closed the show very, very unceremoniously. Uh, because they figured very, very cynically that since the show, since, you know, the pickings were so slim that year, that Chu Chem for sure would have been nominated for some Tonys. Uh, and it wasn't nominated for a single one. Wow. Um, I'm not going to say it's a shame, because we didn't really deserve one. I don't think any anything really deserved, merited even the attention of a, a full price, which was unfortunate. It was fun to do. It was a challenge to do. It was a challenge to make great. Now, I, I have to, I also have to say, you know, everything I'm saying about this is colored by how I felt about it at that time. And I think my own behavior at that point in my career, I was probably not that nice a person uh, when I was doing that show. Uh, I think I had a real attitude problem when I was doing that show. So. Uh, I might not be remembering it as accurately as as um, your audience might want to hear. Um, looking back at it now, though, even though I'm saying all of those things, I look at, back on it kind of fondly. I made some really, really great friends. Uh, I think it was the first big show that I did that I had a... a um, a predominantly um, Asian American cast. Um, and there were just some extraordinary people in it. Barry Bernal, uh, who went on to originate the role of Tui in Miss Saigon. Christine Toy Johnson, who was one of the anchors, one of the pillars, I should say, of the Asian American uh, Broadway community. Um, Paul Nakauchi, uh, uh, our dear departed Tim Fuji, who was one of the original sailors, one of the three British sailors in the original production of, of Pacific Overtures. Wow. Um, he was in it. Uh, Zoe Nina Lamb. It, it was just, and I could go on and on and on. It, it was just um, such a great group of people. And and again, like every other you know troubled show that I was ever in, it was a group of people that bonded together really, really tightly. Um, but I'll give you an idea of, and this is not a joke. This is this actually happened. Um, this is how I'm not going to say good or bad. This is how unsatisfying some people found the show. One night, a fight broke out in the audience in the middle of Act One because someone was trying to leave before the end of the act and had to climb over someone else. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm going to just hazard a guess. They weren't leaving because they had an emergency. Yeah. Yeah. And so you mentioned um, Pacific Overtures, and that's a show that you have a long history with. You did it with Marco himself and then at the Classic Stage Company with John Doyle. And what do you think is the, is the greatness of that show? 
the greatness of that show is that it, it dares to have an idea as the main character. Um, the greatness of that show is that it's deceptive in a very entertaining way. It is not, um, for those of you who think who might think it is, uh, or suspect that it is, it's not any kind of authentic Japanese theatrical piece. Yeah. It is a Broadway musical. It is a view of Japan seen through the eyes of uh, uh, Broadway creative artists working at the top of their form, who have questions to ask about culture and about change. Um, now, that makes it sound pretty dry. Uh, it's also, um, I'd say it's also sumptuous and grand on a deeply internal level. Um, it can be done uh, with huge sets. I think the original production, the original production changed my life. As a matter of fact, it's why I became an actor. I was um, in Southern California in graduate school. I was studying history. I was studying European intellectual history. Um, and uh, I went to see the original cast on tour of Pacific Overtures. And from the moment that show started and that show curtain dropped, the Kabuki curtain dropped and revealed the, the, the company on stage. And I saw a sea of people who looked like me. Something caught on fire deep in my soul. And I said, I, I have to do this. Now, up until then, I had done some amateur theater. Uh, I had done uh, a couple little college things. Um, but again, I didn't really know. I didn't really expect to have a career as an actor. I didn't really think of myself uh, as setting off to become a creative artist in any way at all. I thought that that was reserved for, I don't know, other people. Certainly not me. And I wasn't encouraged to do that by my, by my environment, by my family or anything like that. But something changed. And it's sort of ironic that the show itself is about change. Uh, the, the show itself is about, you know, um, history. The arc of history. How it doesn't always end in justice, but it ends with more questions. And asking more questions is never a bad thing. So uh, it can work on that level. It can work in a big grand way. And it can also work in a very, very small way, like in the way that John did it without any sense. Yeah. Um, with a cast of how many, how many of us were there? Nine, 10 people on stage. Um, because it can touch people in a completely different way. And the fact that so many people found it so moving means that somehow those creative artists did their work. You can still have an idea as a main character, and it can still be emotionally engaging on a deep, deep level. I think it's an extraordinary show. I, would, I have my own little concept. I would love to have a chance to direct it one day. I don't think that, I'm not sure that that will ever happen. But, um, but I think it's just, I think it's just amazing. I, th I think the, 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 you know, the measure of how good, how complete something is, is uh, always in, in the number of different ways that you can do it. And I think Pacific Overtures lends itself to that.
a lot of people a lot of people criticize Pacific Overtures for being really really flawed um uh, a lot of people you know they criticize all of Sondheim's work for being flawed what's so interesting about the canon of Sondheim's work you know um uh, starting with probably with what you'd call his problematic works you know starting with collaborations with Hal Prince I think all of those flaws are real virtues which is kind of interesting yeah um I, I I get a little impatient with people saying oh I'm gonna I'm gonna fix this show right um when in fact it doesn't need to be fixed what it needs to be is explored you just need to dig deeper into it yeah and Pacific Overtures is a prime example of that and um, between the productions you've done of Pacific Overtures as well as Sweeney Todd Merrily and Into the Woods did you ever get to have any personal interaction with Stephen Sondheim or yes yes I did okay. yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to say that, again I'm not going to say that Stephen and I were friends or anything like that but he was he was always very kind to me he was always very enthusiastic uh, when he came to see uh, Sweeney Todd at Barrow Street. And he came to see our, our cast, the cast that was in it for the last six times, uh, six months, uh, many, many times. And uh, I was so pleased because he couldn't wait to jump up and speak to each one of us. Um, and you know what's really wonderful is that the thing that he wanted to know most is whether we were having fun, whether we were having a good time doing his show. And, and that took me by complete surprise until I realized one day, and this was after the show closed, that he was treating it almost like a gift to us. And he just wanted to know if we liked it. Yeah. It's amazing when you think about the kind of person that he was, the kind of creative person that he was. I remember I had a friend who was in the original cast of Sunday in the Park with George. And uh, when he wrote that incredible song, uh, Finishing the Hat, this person said something to the effect that, I don't think I can work anymore today because I'm just blown away. And um, Steve said something like, uh, said, did you like it? Does that mean you liked it? <laughs> like, he, you know, there he was, the, probably the, you know, the, the, the greatest genius of the modern theater, you know, the modern musical theater. And he's as insecure as the rest of us. Yeah. You know, in his own way, about different things, but the same kind of vulnerability that we all share, you know. Sometimes we forget that the people we admire most are just humans, but that's what links us together, right? That's what that's yeah. what makes this all worth doing. It, it it's funny. I remember the I had one particular audition for him that was just an absolute disaster. Um, an absolute disaster. Um, and I left the room feeling so ashamed. And then when I ran into him a couple months later, he couldn't have been nicer and generous. It's almost like he knew that I felt bad and he just didn't want me to feel bad. 
It didn't mean he was going to hire me. It didn't mean I was ever going to work with him. Um, Because I never really actually did work with him on a daily basis, you know. Uh, He wasn't involved in the creation of the John Doyle production of uh, Pacific Overtures. You know, he he came in and he gave some notes and he and he came in and he gave some notes on the Sweeney Todd uh, at Barrow Street. But uh, we were never in rehearsal together. And I'm not sure that ever would have happened Um, because there's so many really, really great people out there. Uh, But he 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 couldn't have been nicer. And I think he just didn't want me to feel terrible. I had a bad audition. Yeah. It's very nice to hear. And what was your process like as an actor of creating your interpretation of Sweeney Todd, of that role? Wow. You know, I had done it before. Right. I had done it out in, uh, out in regional theater, and they were sort of little mini productions of the original production. I wanna, don't want to take anything away from, from the, the fact that I thought those productions were very good and beautifully directed. But essentially, I think it took a long time for someone to realize that Sweeney Todd could be done in a different way. John Doyle being probably the, the, the uh, first person to really make a splash with, with reconceiving that show. I was not in that show. Uh, but working with Bill Buckhurst was interesting because his uh, concept for the Barrow Street production was very, very specific. It was supposed to be like uh, a blend of, it was site specific. Yes, it took place in a pie shop. Can't avoid that. Uh, but he wanted it to be a combination of musical theater and a haunted house experience for the audience. Um, and Steve wanted that too. I had to let go of all the expectations that I ever had before of the show in approaching it. And it had to be completely available to what, um, Bill wanted to do with that. Bill and his really, really terrific, uh, production supervisors, Mia Ravegno and, um, Andrew. Oh, Andrew, I'm so sorry. I'm going to forget your last name. Um, but his terrific production supervisors who, who kept a tight leash on all of us so the show would never get out of hand. Um, but the thing that made the show most different for me from how I had done it before was that I was older. I had gone through a lot of serious changes in my life. Um, and it was about something different than it was before. Yeah. It wasn't about vengeance. Um, as a matter of fact, when I auditioned for it and they sent me the um, they sent me the sides, the material that I had to audition with. I'll be absolutely honest with you. Initially, I was kind of ambivalent about doing it because I felt I was maybe a little too old for the role. I felt that I had done it already, that I didn't know what else I could bring to it. I didn't want to work that hard. Uh, and then I read the material and I was reading it. I was reading something in there that I had never read before. And it was about loss. And it was about grief. And it wasn't about a vengeful man named Sweeney Todd. It was about a heartbroken barber named Benjamin Barker. That's what I had to discover in the course of rehearsals. And that's sort of what my process was. I started from there. I started from a place of loss uh, rather than a place of vengeance, a desire for vengeance. Yeah. 
desire for anger. And it's kind of interesting. I think my purpose every single night playing that role was to play Benjamin Barker until Sweeney Todd took over. And what's interesting for me in my read of the show is the minute Sweeney Todd takes over, all the wheels come off. Um, because he's really just Benjamin Barker, a guy who has lost everything. Maybe that's a good moral lesson of the piece. And I don't think that I don't think the piece is filled with great moral lessons, but maybe maybe one of them is, you know, we're not supposed to be hardwired for vengeance. We are hardwired for grief when we lose something. You know, he doesn't, he kills the judge, but he really doesn't win in the end. <laughs> yeah. But having said all that, having said all that, it was really great to go in there and have a very, very specific game plan ahead of me in terms of, because you didn't have a whole lot of freedom. The space was small. The space was very, very specific. And the kinds of things that, that Bill and Andrew and Mia uh, had to have us do on a nightly basis were very, very clearly delineated in terms of how the action played out. My task was how I could make all of that truthful for me. And so um, that was my contribution. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing all this. Sure, thank you for asking. And we talked a little bit about Cymbelinism, experiencing Shakespeare in the park, and another Shakespeare show that you did, if not exactly the original text, was the musical of Romeo and Juliet by Terrence mm. Mann and directed by him. And for those who don't know, what was that sort of like when it was musicalized? And Again, that was just another one of those stillborn pieces that somebody should pick up and do again because it was really, really beautiful. Um, I think we ran out of time and I think we didn't have enough, I hate to say this, I didn't think we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough money, which meant we didn't have enough people yeah. uh, populating the piece. So it was a little bit confusing, but we had a couple of extraordinary performances, probably, um, you know, Candy Buckley played the nurse. Patrick Wilson was Romeo. And it was a beautiful performance. It was just, just extraordinary. And uh, Terry and Jerry Corman wrote some incredible music, uh, uh, some incredible, incredible settings of the text. It was all Shakespeare's text. There, were, there, there wasn't an original, you know, any, any original language in it. It was all Shakespeare. It was all from the text. The only, the only thing that wasn't from Romeo and Juliet um, that they interpolated into the show uh, was that beautiful sonnet. I forget what number it is. Uh, that beautiful sonnet, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day? Uh, which if you can find that music, uh, that is a knock em dead pop song. Uh. If anyone can find it out there. But um, it is, uh, it was great. We were in St. Paul and in, in a beautiful theater um, and uh, it was a it was a wonderful group of people. I think we all loved the piece, but I think we all knew it wasn't really going to go anywhere. It had too many things going against it. Yeah. Terry is, uh, you know, Terry is such a you know he's he's legendary for those of us in the theater, uh, and he's such a kind, uh, positive, uh, creative person. Um, I, 
I really think he's, uh, I really think he was onto something great there. And I hope he hasn't given up on this piece because it is worthy of being done somewhere. And uh, show we mentioned briefly before, but didn't get to talk fully about was face value the um, the David Henry Fong play, and mm -hmm. and what was it like to be collaborating with him? Such a I didn't collaborate really. I was just a part of it. You know, I was standing oh. by for Dennis Dunn, who uh, was later replaced by B. D. Wong, and uh, but. Uh, um, I loved that piece. I, I thought it was just really, really amazing. Uh, I'm not sure what the problem was. Uh, I, I don't know whether it was the elements, you know, there, we lived through two blizzards, one uh, that hit us when we were in Boston and one that hit us here when we were in New York. We closed in previews, we never actually opened. Um, but there was, it was hard to find a tone for it because it was like all of David's best work. It was, it was David Henry Wong's best work. It was a play about ideas. Uh, again, it's a play about culture, uh, about change. Um, there were elements of it that made the play very, very angry, but it was an anger that grew out of heartbreak, uh, a grew, grew out of the heartbreak uh, brought on by exclusion, uh, something that Asian Americans had experienced for, you know, uh, well, I don't need to go into that, but, um, and yet it was written as a farce, as a slander farce. And who would think of David Henry Wong as writing a slander farce? But he can't, well, he's a great writer. And, uh, and he wrote some, just some hilarious side splitting stuff, but it was all, the director, could never find, and David could never find the balance of those thing, two things to work effectively. Yeah. Um, and I think at a certain point they were both, they both couldn't figure it out. Um, yeah, it just, it, it, it just never got off the page. You know, it worked really, really well. This is an interesting lesson too. It worked really well in the studio like side splitting in the studio. In the theater, it didn't work at all. Ah. Um, but I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Um, BD, Jane Krakowski, um, uh, Jerry Zachs, uh, it was, uh, Loy Arsenis did the set. Yeah, we had, we had, nobody was in the audience on a couple of occasions. I think maybe oh. 60 people in the audience on one occasion in, in, in Boston because of the blizzard. Um, but the show went on. Yeah, it was a time. And something I'm very curious to ask you about is you did a stage version of Aladdin at, I believe, the Muni before it was on <laughs> Yes. <And> so, <laughs> How, how different was what was there from what? It was so completely different and it brought the house down every night. It was fun and huge and we had camels on stage. Wow. John Tatalia played the genie. He, he's a genius. Um, at, at, one, at one point he came on, uh, on one of those, what do they call them? Segways? The, those, those little rolly things um drinking a margarita that was that was the kind of humor very very unexpected undisney irreverent kind of humor um 
that really, really came to life, uh, really brought the show to life in ways that uh, nobody expected. Um, and yet we never violated the, we never violated the show. It was incredible. Robin DeJesus played Aladdin. Um, he was, ex he was, he was just so, so magnificent and so vulnerable and so not the animated Disney hero. I don't want to take anything away from the Aladdin that's on Broadway right now, which I think is terrific. It was a different show. It was apples and oranges. It was, it was fish and meat. And, um, but man, we had a joyful time doing it. Camels. We had three camels on stage. And um, I know we, we talked a bit about the times they are changing, but I'd be curious to ask you more about Twyla Tharpen and what she's like as a director and choreographer in the room. She's fantastic. She's just fantastic. She brings a company together. Uh, you become part of Twyla's family, Twyla's creative family, an extended family that even lasts beyond that. Um, it was, it was a difficult process. Uh, you know, Mr. Dillon was not around, uh, and, uh, and she had a very, very specific idea, a vision of what she wanted to do. I don't know. There were a lot of obstacles that prevented it from ever really coming to life, but she never gave up. She never, nobody worked harder than Twyla in the room. I think that was that was the challenge like every day you wanted to work that hard she's just great we get together every now and then you know for you know not not infrequently for tea and uh, just to talk about things um and uh i love her dearly i do that's wonderful and so to um to take us up a little more to the present day um, when you were working, I know you mentioned you were working right before the pandemic. So how did you find out about the theater shutdown? Were you expecting it or did it come as a surprise? I think we all were. I think it wasn't a question of, of, of if as much as it was a question of when. Uh, I think for two weeks we had been, we had been talking about uh, oh, maybe we should all be wearing masks or we started to notice Every now and then there would be a few people out in the audience with a mask on, you know, um, we started talking about this, a couple of people in the company had children and we were talking about schools and whether the schools were going to be shut down, whether the subways were going to be shut down. Uh, I mean, things were getting pretty serious and then they, then rapidly, they became very, very serious. Um, we, yeah, but we just didn't think it was going to happen so quickly. And of course, we were distracted by the fact that we were working our way up to opening night. And um, that rehearsal process was wonderful. We didn't we didn't want to stop rehearsing that show. There was so much. It was it was it was so rewarding to work on Unknown Soldier. Uh, but we worked up until the last, you know, until. You know, I think the Friday and then we had we couldn't rehearse on Saturday, we couldn't rehearse on Sunday. And we opened on Monday. So we rehearsed until that Friday um, before we opened. So, you know, we were preoccupied with working on the show. But on, in our downtime, you know, we were talking about what was going on in the world, what was going on with this disease. We opened the show. 
We had Tuesday off. Wednesday night we did the show and with the reviews we got, I would have expected a full house. We had half a house and most of those people were wearing masks. And it was sad, but we were so proud of the show. And Thursday, I think I speak for all of us in the show, we were, I was getting ready. I was putting my bag together to go to the theater and I opened up my computer to check my email and there was um, a message from the general manager of the theater saying we played our last performance last night. Wow. You know, you don't have to come to the theater today, but if you're on the way, come to collect your stuff. It was hard. And so I think most of us showed up that night. We got our things. We had a chance to say goodbye to each other. Uh, a few of us walked up on the stage so we could stand on the stage for the last time because I think we all had a feeling we weren't going to open again. Yeah. Um, and we said goodbye. Wow. It's hard. It's hard to close any show, even a show that's not, even a show that you don't like that you have to do. It's hard. Uh, but it was particularly hard. That one was particularly hard because um, it wasn't closing, it was stopping. And there's a difference. Yeah. At least we got the chance to say goodbye to each other though, which was nice. Um, and that was it. Of course, the of course the postscript to that was, um, I was sick the next week. I thought I just had the flu. Because oh. sometimes, you know, well, it happens to a lot of actors, uh, a lot of creative people, you, a lot of people in any business. You finish working on a project that that has been very taxing, uh, and you suddenly have downtime, and your body just collapses. You oh. just down you say okay i'm gonna be sick for 24 48 hours and that's what i thought it was uh, i didn't really have any symptoms or anything like that um, but i had migraines which i had never had before but i felt lousy just under the weather for about 10 days um, but i didn't have any of the symptoms that they were talking about on the news about what covid might be and it wasn't until a couple months later that i took an antibody test and it turned out that indeed I had, I must've had COVID. Oh. So, and I think I, I think I might've got it on opening night at the <laughs> opening night party, which is why we should not be having opening night <laughs> parties. Not until this pandemic is really over. So that's my two cents about that. <laughs> and so you, um, you participated in a remarkable remarkable amount of virtual theater as well during the pandemic and oh my gosh charles you know everything <laughs> <laughs> right most mrs warren's profession all that and and what do you think is the art to putting on theater in that in that scenario connecting connecting through the lens uh there's an immediacy there that you bring the audience you 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 connect to the audience in a different way now i'm talking to you on zoom right now and i could be looking at you i could be looking at me a lot of times we look at ourselves we try to you know, get these rid of these things under my eyes or we look at you but you're you're looking at me looking at something else but your reaction to it is completely different if i'm talking to you like this because i'm making a connection with you um I have to take for granted that I'm making a connection with you. 
Um, but if I am talking to multiple people, I'm making a connection with multiple people. I trust that I am. Uh, and I can usually tell from their response. Um, how they, you know, um, and this is just my own theory, you know, I just, I just kind of made this up. Uh, but it did turn out to be true. I started teaching, I was teaching before we closed and my classes switched to a Zoom format. Um, and it wasn't quite satisfying for everyone until I started talking directly to them like this. And I asked them to speak directly to me like that and to do their scene work or their monologues or whatever in the same way. Um, was it hard? Yeah, is there an adjustment that you have to make as a theater actor because you're not making contact with another person's eyes and you're not feeling their body, the warmth of their body? Yeah, I mean, all this stuff are compromises that you have to make. But you know what? We do that all the time. If you ever do an animated film, you're doing it line by line. You're not, you're not even doing it in the context of, uh, the, the context of, a, of a whole scene, right? But you're still an actor, you're still creating something, you're still making a performance happen. If you're on TV and you're doing a scene and you're doing a reverse shot and the actor you're working with is sitting uh, and the director wants your eye line to be in a particular place and it's a place where the actor you're working with isn't sitting, you have to essentially do zoom acting. You have to look someplace else and you have to direct your energy towards that. Is that theater? No, but it's a, it's a different kind of acting. It's a different kind of skills. And I think what, what's so interesting about virtual acting is it required the development of a different skill set. And it was up to individual actors whether that was going to be satisfying to them or not. And I think the biggest problem is that for most of us, and to a degree I include myself in that, most of us in the business, particularly theater makers the, the, who, who pay for, the, for making theater, wanted to go back to what we were doing before. Yeah. We didn't want to invest in creating a new form. As we have learned, we can go back, but things are different. The theater is different from what it was before. We're just going through the motions of doing what we did before, but like the song says, you know, you can never go back to before. Yeah. It's not going to be the same. We've learned too much. We're too different. There is this whole thing that someday somebody's going to monetize it. And I would hate to think that we missed the boat on how to effectively use it. I don't know what that is, but I believe it's out there. And so I was really, really enthusiastic and very excited about virtual acting the entire time. And I still am. I still think it has potential. I don't, I leave it to someone smarter than me to figure, and there are many people, <laughs> so, so much smarter than me, uh, who can figure out how to make it work effectively, but my ears are open for it and I'm available to it. Because I think we should always be trying to figure out new ways to do things. But I think that there are new and different kinds of storytelling we can do uh, in this medium. And I can't wait to see what that is. I hope I'm, allowed, I hope I'm alive to see it. Sure, you will be on me too, me too. And so beyond the project that you're working on currently, of course, is a man of no importance at a classic stage company. And this is a show I love, but I'd be curious to ask you, what do you think makes it so relevant now? Oh my gosh, so many things. Um, in terms of theme, 
subtext. It's about identity. It's about how we find our identity and what we create and do, whether we're making theater or whether we're a butcher or a bus driver. Um, it's about how we, uh, we define ourselves. But that's all subtext. It's also about, you know, in a more basic sense, it's, it's about finding the love in what we do and not forgetting that whatever we create, whether it's a relationship or whether it's a work of art, it comes from a place of love, self-love, and love for what we're doing. And the thing that we're doing is an expression of love for whoever is watching it, whoever we're sending it out to. Oh my gosh, it's a beautiful show, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I confess, I, I never really knew about the show before I started working on it. Oh, you know, before I, you know, was was asked if I was interested in in being a part of it. Um, it's uh, it's so interesting. I've worked with John Doyle three times. This will be the third time, actually. Um, and every time he's changed my my life. Every time he's changed my way of working. It's just the way John works. Um, it's, it's a, it's a master class in, in personal creativity every single day. Um, and I think it's so evident in all of the work that he does. And, um, so I think it's very special that this show, this particular show is about what John does. It's about making theater. But it's not just arbitrarily making theater, poof, I'm making theater. It's about the people that make it and where it comes from, and why they make it, why we need to make it. I, I think that that's why, you know, I've talked to so many people who love this show. Um, but it's funny, uh, it's, not, it's not up there in the pantheon of great shows, like and it probably should be. Uh, Guys and Dolls and Oklahoma, again, I'm saying it, and, and Sweeney Todd, right? It's not, it's not on that list, that short list of what people consider, consider uh, uh, great musicals. But I'll go up to people and I'll say, oh, I'm doing the man of, a man of no importance. And they say, oh, my God, I love that show so much. And my first response is, why are you whispering? Why is it a secret? I don't understand that. That's and I and the only reason I bring that up is that so many people have done that. But I think they do it because it touches them so deeply that they're almost embarrassed by it. Um, man, this show touches me deeply, and I think it's going to touch deeply everyone who sees it if if they've never seen it before. And I think the way we're doing it, the John's what he calls his essentialist approach to the theater, what a lot of people call minimalism, which is just the, you know, that's such, such a misplaced term in terms of John's work. Um, he, you know, his work it uses what's essential to get to the heart of the story. I think they're gonna be moved in ways they never expected. And for people who haven't seen it, oh my gosh, this is Terrence McNally and Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Aaron's and John Doyle working at the, uh, at the top of their form. It's just so beautiful. And I cannot believe this cast that I'm in. I'm oh, just, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm starstruck. Not just by Jim Parsons and Mary Winningham, but uh, 
there are some people up here who I have admired for so long. Some are friends and now some are new friends. It's really, really cool. Great. Well, I can't wait to see it. I'm sure it will be wonderful. It's good. Yes, we start previews on October 11th and our official opening is um, October 30th. And we run through December, through, I think, I believe, sometime in December. Um, and if you just visit Classic Stage Company, CSC, uh, you know, uh, on the interwebs, you can uh, find all the information you need. Yeah. It's really, really special, too, because this is, you know, this is John's final uh, show as artistic director at CSC. Uh, he's been there for several years. Right. Um, and he's really, um, I think he's made that space. I've always loved CSC, uh, you know, going back to, you know, when I first got to New York, uh, it represented for me 